So hopefully you've got your Bibles open to uh, Revelation chapter 21 now. So just to recap where we are in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, the stage was set for the glorious resolution of the biblical story. We saw the defeat of Satan, the final judgment, the resurrection from the dead, those who have trusted in and been loyal to King Jesus and whose names are written in the book of life are raised to a new resurrection, and those whose names are not in the book of life are raised to condemnation and thrown in the lake of fire. Even death itself is thrown in the lake of fire. The created order is unmade. So evil has been purged from God's good creation. The old creation has been undone. God's people have been raised to everlasting life. All the preparations have been made for the wedding of Christ and his bride. And there are two perspectives on this wedding that are presented to us in Revelation 21 and 22. One perspective is through a zoom lens, and the other is from a wide-angle lens. So for those of you who are familiar with, with cameras and photography, a zoom lens focuses on a specific thing, and it brings it into perfect clarity in all its details. Whereas a wide-angle lens doesn't have the same focus, but it gives the broader picture of the setting. So wide-angle lenses show off the space, the location, but zoom lenses show off an object. So here are the two perspectives of the wedding that are presented to us in Revelation. Through the zoom lens, the focus is on Christ and his church. The church, God's people, are going to finally, everlastingly dwell with God as their father and Christ as their husband. But this text also shows us the wide-angle lens, because while at the center of the story is Christ and his bride, there are guests at this wedding as well. We'll see in this text, heaven and earth united and recreated in glory. The entire created order is caught up into the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Through our zoom lens and our wide-angle lens, we can see this, that God is preparing us to dwell with him forever as his people in a renewed creation. God is preparing us to dwell with him forever as his people in a renewed creation. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. We'll read Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire 
and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, um, there is so much glory and beauty in this passage. Um, I pray that your word would have its good effect in our hearts, that we would be stirred to hold fast to Jesus because of the future that you have in store for us. Thank you that these words are trustworthy and sure, that you will accomplish what you've promised to do in recreating all things. Lift our eyes this morning from our present circumstances and to your coming kingdom where we will dwell with you forever. Open our hearts to your word now in Jesus' name, amen. So there'll be three points today. First, God dwelling with man, which is the zoom lens of the passage. Then the renewed creation, which is our wide angle lens. And then we're going to talk about how God is preparing us for this glory. So first point, God dwelling with man. The zoom focus of this passage is the climactic declaration in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. The focus of the new creation is God and man dwelling together again. So it's critical to understand that this reunion of God dwelling with man that we see in Revelation 21 is the goal that the whole biblical story is pointing towards. In the beginning, God created um, mankind to dwell with him in the Garden of Eden. But because of their sin, Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence. And the rest of the story of Scripture is the long journey back to the garden, the long journey back to God dwelling with man again. And so we see God set into motion a rescue plan to bring people back to dwell with him again. God chooses Abraham, and he tells him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his family, and he establishes a pattern that we will hear over and over again in the Old Testament. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you, God to you, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then when Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, the Lord calls Moses and he says to him, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the, your burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. When the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, they renew the covenant with the Lord so that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Interwoven with this promise to be their God and they will be his people was a promise that God would dwell with them. When the Lord gave Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle, he says, at the tabernacle, at the tabernacle I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified in my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. 
And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And these threads are all woven together when the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, looking forward to the day when the son of David will reign over God's people, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Throughout the entire biblical story, God is promising that someday he will dwell with his people and they will be his, he'll be his God and they'll be his people. And now in Revelation chapter 21, this is finally happening, the culmination of the biblical story. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 is deeply Trinitarian. Although we shouldn't use watertight distinctions here, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8 is primarily focused on our restored relationship with the Father. The rest of chapter 21 focuses on a restored relationship with the Son as his bride. And then chapter 22 speaks of the river of life depicting the Holy Spirit permeating the new creation. So let's see what this God-dwelling-with-man relationship looks like. In particular, our restored relationship with the Father. This is really beautiful. Let's engage our hearts and our minds as we reread verse 3 and go into verse 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't it beautiful that the very first thing that God says after he declares that he's going to be with his people is he says he's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes? This is the heart of our loving Father. Just imagine this. Imagine the Father wiping the tears from your eyes. He knows that the journey has been hard. And maybe what each of us need in order for eternal joy to flood our hearts is for the Father to take us, wipe away our tears, and tell us, I know that was really hard, but you made it. Well done. It's all over now. I promise. Death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. So death, mourning, crying, and pain, these are all these former things that had to do with the old creation where God and man were separated. But one day, he will be with us and will no longer have anything to fear or to dread. In verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne, that is the Father, says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, this is sure. This is where the whole creation is going. We are heading towards God dwelling with us again. God will surely do it. Look at verse 6. It says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, as we read this text, a question may have come up in your mind, which is, aren't there Bible verses that talk about some of these things as present realities, about God dwelling with us now, or seem to remember something about Jesus talking about drinking living water, or in verse 7, it talks about us being children of God. Um, 
How can we understand what's happening in Revelation 21? Well, we need to see not only that this new creation is the goal towards which the whole biblical story is pointing, but also what we're seeing in Revelation is not the beginning, but the culmination, the completion, the fullness of God's renovation of his creation that he began in Christ 2,000 years ago. So God's act of renovating the creation had its most decisive act when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus was not merely resuscitated like Lazarus or some other people in the scriptures who were raised from the dead. Rather, Jesus received his inheritance. He received authority over all creation, glory and honor, and an indestructible body that cannot be touched by the second death. Jesus passed through death and rose on the other side. What God's people had always expected to happen at the end of history, the resurrection from the dead, happened to Jesus in the middle of history. What this means is that the events of the last days started with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He was the inauguration of the new creation. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.18. Paul speaks of Jesus saying, he is the beginning And at first, you might think it's talking about how he's the beginning, like um, he existed before creation, but that's not what Paul says. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the beginning of what? Of the new creation. Jesus was the first human to rise from the dead, but he won't be the last. He was the first so that he might receive the firstborn inheritance and share it with his brothers and sisters. And 1 Corinthians 15 uses a similar metaphor, that of first fruits. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus' resurrection was a new creation reality breaking in on the old creation. But Jesus' resurrection isn't the only new creation reality that breaks in on this old creation. We are part of this as well. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So do you see the connection between this passage in Revelation 21? Old passing away and the new coming. So friends, you are already part of this new creation reality. This has already been started. So Yes, what we see in Revelation 21, these final things have already started. We experience in part now what we will someday experience in their fullness. And that's the difference of what we're seeing in Revelation 21. We are seeing the fullness of the culmination of this new creation reality that God has begun in Christ. So let's, let's look at this fullness of these promises in three places in Revelation 21. And in verse 3, we talk about God dwelling with man 2 Corinthians 6.16, speaking of a present reality for us in the church, says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So if you are in Christ, God is with you, dwelling in you now. But the difference is, for now we see him only by faith. We see through a glass dimly. One day our faith will be turned to sight. We will see him with perfect clarity and closeness and intimacy, and we will experience the fullness of God dwelling with us. 
Secondly, we can look at verse 5 for this already inaugurated but not yet in its fullness about the thirsty drinking from the spring of water of life. This sounds very similar to what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the best way to understand this is that there is a degree to which those of us who are in Christ have already drunk of this living water. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but there is a fullness of this drinking that is yet to come. When I read um, this verse 5 in Revelation 21, I think about when I was a kid and we had this standalone spigot in our backyard. And when I was thirsty after playing basketball or something, I would just turn that thing wide, on, wide open and just guzzle the water that was coming out of it. It was like drinking from a little fire hydrant. The picture here in Revelation 21 is not just getting a small taste, but drinking fully and deeply. Not drinking downstream, but drinking from the fountainhead of life itself. And then we can see this already not yet again in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. So there is an already aspect to this. Galatians 4, 7 says, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And 1 John 3, 2 says, We are God's children now. So what is the fullness of sonship that's described in Revelation 21? Well, it's not super obvious in the ESV translation. The New American Standard is much closer to the Greek when it says, the one who overcomes will inherit these things. The fullness of our sonship is that at Christ's return, we will come into our inheritance, of which now we've only received a small deposit or a down payment. So what is this inheritance? Well, in the immediate context of Revelation 21, it is being a participant in the new creation. It's drinking from the water, spring of the water of life. But the phrase in verse 7, the one who conquers, should remind us of the broader context of the book of Revelation, of all of the promises that are given to these seven churches and to us back in chapters 2 and 3. The inheritance of the one who conquers is to, see if you remember these, eat from the tree of life, have abundant everlasting life to be, be given some of the hidden manna and be given a white stone. So have a special and unique relationship with God. To sit with Jesus on his throne and to be give, given the morning star, to share in the glory and the rule of Christ. A day will come when we will come into the fullness of our inheritance as sons. So friends, these pictures of God dwelling with us were written for the churches in the first century, and they're written for us for one purpose, that we would endure, that we would hold fast to Jesus. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 says, here is the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So church, patiently endure. Your faith will turn to sight. You will drink from the spring of living water. Our God will dwell with us again. So we just spent time zoomed in on the focus of the new creation, which is God dwelling with us, him being with our God, us being his people. And this Zoom is relational. It's about 
God and us, the Father as our Father, and us, as we'll see next week, as us being united to Christ as his bride. So that's the main focus. But there's also a beautiful setting, a dwelling place where God will dwell with us. So now let's pull back and let's look at the wide angle lens and see the renewed creation. Point number two is the renewed creation. So the wide angle lens of this text gives us the setting. Where will God be dwelling with us? So look together at verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So this coupling heaven and earth occurs 43 times in the Bible. When it's paired together, it nearly always represents the entire created order, the entire cosmos. We could call this together, the new heaven and the new earth, as the new creation. So God sees, uh, John sees a new heaven and a new earth, which is contrasted against the former or the old heaven and earth. This references back to chapter 20, verse 11, where the earth and sky fled from the presence of the one on the throne. The created order is being undone, is being unmade and recreated in glory. Verse 1 also says that the sea was no more. Now, even in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, we need to continue to keep in mind that John is still seeing a symbolic vision, even in these chapters. In the book of Revelation, the sea represents the place of cosmic evil and the origin of, and the place of the dead. In his vision, the new creation has no more sea. The chaos and the evil of the old order is completely gone, never to return. And the way that the Lord chose to depict this to John was a new creation with no sea. So this vision is entirely compatible with the possibility of there being literal oceans, lakes, and other bodies of water in the new creation. What John is picturing here is a new created order in which there is no more sin, there's no more evil, no more chaos forever. Let's look together at verse 2 says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This city, the new Jerusalem, is the centerpiece. It's the masterpiece of the new creation. And starting in verse 9, through the rest of the book of Revelation, there's a focus on this city. So we won't spend much time here on it today. But there are a couple things to note. As we're getting close to wrapping up the book of Revelation, if you're still kind of struggling through, like, is this symbolic? Is this literal? What's happening here? I'd really encourage you to consider verses 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 21 to show that we're really dealing with symbolic visions here. Look at verses 9 through 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So look at this text. The angel says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then the angel shows him the holy city, Jerusalem. So we know who the bride, the wife of the lamb is. It's the church. The church is the bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride. So the church is the new Jerusalem. This vision of the new Jerusalem is a non-literal depiction of the glory of Christ's church. 
And we've really already seen this in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write his name, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So we aren't going to be literal pillars in a temple, but we are going to be part of the new Jerusalem. So what's the point of this, this city bride depiction, this dual city bride? It's kind of similar to what we saw earlier in Revelation where Jesus is pictured as the lion lamb. It's prevent, presenting two different aspects of the same reality. So why a city bride? Well, I think this combination gives us a beautiful truth. We aren't merely going back to what we had in the garden. What God has accomplished in Christ is something far greater. The vision of the city bride, city slash bride, shows us that the dwelling place of God is not merely with us, but the dwelling place of God is us. The dwelling place of God is not merely with us, but is us in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. We will be united to Christ in a way that marriage between a man and a woman is just a mere reflection. The true and final reality of marital consummation is that between Christ and his bride. So one possible misunderstanding as we read Revelation 21, verse 1, is to think that the old creation will be completely destroyed and that this new creation is a replacement for the old one. And certainly there is a contrast between the old and new creation, but I think it's important that we understand that there's continuity as well. There are some ways in which the new creation will be unlike, but other ways in which it will be like the, uh, the new and the old will be like each other. The scripture doesn't give us all the details of how the new creation will be like or unlike the old. However, we have several metaphors that are given to us that can help us start to grasp this. Romans chapter 8 gives us two pictures of what will happen at Christ's return from the creation's perspective, which is really interesting. There are two images here. There's the image of being set free from slavery and the image of childbirth. So Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23 will be up on the screen. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So first, consider this image of being set free from bondage. According to Romans 8, far from the existing creation being discarded and a new one being put in its place, the consummation will be when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this image emphasizes the continuity between the old and the new creation. It envisions the new creation as the old creation, but set free from corruption and slavery. So in a similar way to how the new you that exists after you've been raised from the dead will still be you, 
in all the best and most meaningful ways. The new creation, the new heavens and new earth will still be this creation in all the best ways. Next, let's look at this image of childbirth um, that Paul gives. And this image might help kind of tie together how the new creation is like but unlike the old. Paul pictures the creation like a woman in labor pains. And what she's going to give birth to is the new creation. So think for a moment about the relationship between a daughter and her mother. A daughter isn't her mother, but she is like her mother. There's this family resemblance between the two. We will see a family resemblance between the old creation and the new one. But the glory of the daughter will be far greater than that of her mother. So none of these texts give us a complete picture of what the new creation will be like. They speak to us in metaphors. They speak to us in hints and whispers. But what we can know is that the new heaven and new earth will not be new in an absolute sense, that it will be a renovation, a renewal of this creation. Or as it states in verse 5 of our text, God is making all things new. He's not making all new things. See the difference there? He's making all things new. He's not making all new things. The creation itself will be renovated. It will be recreated. It will be transformed. But not everybody will have an inheritance in this new creation. Let's look together at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So sometimes we can think about how there are two possible eternal destinations, heaven or hell. And certainly there is value in that contrast. So which path are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the path that leads to life or choose the path that leads to destruction? But I think we would do well to have another contrast in our minds. That is, there are those that are in and there are those that are out. You see, a complete renovation of the universe is where we are heading. Heaven will come to earth. Our bodies will be recreated and be transformed. This is the future for all of those who are in Christ and the future for, our, for this creation. Heaven and hell are not equal but opposite realities. The dominant reality for eternity will be a reunited heaven and earth where God is eternally glorified and we will be eternally satisfied. But not everybody will be in on this glorious future. Some will be outside. And so, yes, where are you going? That's a good question. But another good question is, are you going to be in or are you going to be out? Everything that is sinful Everything that is temporary, everything that is corruptible or weak will be either remade or it will be purged away in preparation for when heaven comes to earth. So are you going to be remade or are you going to be purged away? So friends, this list, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, these are the temptations that the church in the first century was needing to resist and that we are needing to resist. These are the opposite of the holding fast, the conquering that Revelation is calling us to. This text is not saying that if you've been cowardly or sexually immoral, there's no hope for you. It's saying there's no place for your cowardice or your sexual immorality in the new creation. 
The contrast here is not between sinless people and sinful people. The contrast is between those who are clinging to their sin versus those who are clinging to Jesus. When you repent of your sin, die to it, have the penalty paid for it in the cross of Christ. Will you do this? Will you repent of your sin, have the penalty paid for it in the cross of Christ, and be part of this glorious future? Or will you be swept away with your sin that you're still clinging to? So don't cling to your sin. Hold fast to Jesus. So we've seen so far in this text that for those who have trusted in Christ, remain loyal to him, we will dwell with God forever as his people in a renewed creation. This promise, this promise of a glorious future, a future of which God has already given us foretastes and glimpses should bring hope to our hearts and fuel our endurance because God is preparing us to dwell with him forever as his people in a new creation. What I want to do briefly now is draw out in our third point how God is preparing us to make us fit for this new creation. So the third point is prepared for glory. So God is going to prepare us to be a people who are suited to dwell with him and inhabit this new creation. First and second Corinthians both shed light on this and explain how both our outer selves, our physical bodies are prepared for glory, but also how our inner selves will be prepared for glory as well. The resurrection from the dead is how God will prepare our bodies to inhabit the glory of this new creation. So this is really important to understand. Your end state is not to be a disembodied spirit. You are made to be a physical person. When we die, we will be with Jesus, which will be wonderful and glorious. Um, The scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but that's not our final state. In order for us to be able to fully participate in and delight in God's presence, we need to be raised from the dead because we are physical beings. Here's how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians. He says, while we were in this tent, meaning while we're in this physical body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, meaning not that we would become disembodied spirits, but that we would be further clothed, that we would be raised from the dead, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So God knows that your body is weak and perishable, but the solution is not to discard the body, but rather to resurrect it. When we have been raised from the dead, received our glorious imperishable bodies, then we will be ready for the final act, for heaven and earth to be reunited, God dwelling with man, the kingdom of God on earth. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So it is not the case that our inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, is something ethereal and intangible. It's quite the opposite. It's we that are wispy vapors, We, in our flesh and blood, this old creation, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be clothed. 
We must become more real, more solid in order to come into our inheritance. The new creation is so real, so glorious, that your current body could not physically handle it. Our physical bodies are not ready for this glory that's to be revealed. God will clothe us with imperishable, powerful, glorious bodies so that we can inherit the kingdom. So God will prepare our outer selves for glory through the resurrection from the dead. But he is currently preparing our inner selves, our spirits, our character, who we really are deep down. He's preparing our inner selves now. And he's doing it through our sufferings. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. This is so important. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So friends, hear this. Your suffering is not wasted. Your sufferings have a purpose. The purpose is to make you a creature suited to inhabit this new creation. Your sufferings are preparing you to enable you to handle how much glory and joy and beauty God desires to bestow on you for all eternity. God is using your suffering to conform you to the image of Christ, to make you beautiful. God is getting us ready on the inside, in our spirits, ready to enjoy him forever. Then when Christ returns, our physical bodies, our outer selves, will catch up with what God's been working on the inside. Our life will be so real, so indestructible, that we will actually be able to handle dwelling with God and not be destroyed, to drink from the spring of living water. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes the glory that, is prepared, that God is preparing for us. He says, At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the Spirit in us lives directly on God. But the mind, and still more the body, receives life from him at a thousand removes. So very indirectly, through through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements. What we now call physical pleasures, and even thus filtered, are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. If you are in Christ, this is your future with your whole self to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And your present sufferings are part of how God, your loving Father, is preparing you for that glory. So hold fast to Jesus. Don't despise your suffering. It's not wasted. It's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So as we close this morning have two questions to ask, and then we're going to do a, um, a short exercise together. First question is this. How does this promise that, God, that you will dwell with God forever in a renewed creation affect how you live your life? So is this on your radar? 
Or is your mind set on earthly things? These promises in Revelation to the one who overcomes are intended to encourage us to persevere. If we don't consider the glory that's in store for us, we aren't letting the promises have the intended effects on our hearts. So think often of the new heavens and the new earth. Let your sanctified imagination turn often to the image of the Father wiping every tear from your face. Dream often. Talk to your children often about our glorious future of God dwelling with us again. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Don't buy the line that people are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. We will be of the most earthly good if our hearts are enraptured with and longing for our God dwelling with us again. And second question is, what's your perspective on your sufferings? Do you see your sufferings as something God is using to prepare you for this weight of glory? And might that perspective bring you some joy in the midst of your trial? So as we close, we're going to do a, an exercise to encourage each other in these things. This is going to be a little unusual. Um, what I'd like to everyone to do in a moment is just to stand up, and we're going to go around and encourage each other with this phrase um, or something similar. It'll be, don't lose heart. Your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. So what I'd like everybody to do is to stand up and for maybe one or two minutes, turn to somebody next to you, someone else, and encourage them. Don't lose heart. Look them in the eyes. Don't lose heart. Your, eternal, your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Amen. Well, if you can work your way back to your seats. We're going to close with a, uh, with a doxology, which is, which is not, a, uh, it's not a benediction. It's not a prayer of blessing. It's rather a prayer of praise to God. Um, so uh, if you could stand up one more time as we exit here. And we have a hot dog hangout afterwards. So this is a doxology to close us out. To him who loved us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.